Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Daily Dialectic. Uh, Today I'm going to talk about a bunch of different scattered things, because that's basically what I do. Um, And so I just finally saw Licorice Pizza, the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I think it came out in like November or something, and this is like April, so um, I'm pretty late to the party. But yeah, it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Um, And if you follow my um, literary output, I tweet about Jewish women from time to time. Uh, and this movie's all about Jewish women. Um, I guess we could say Jewish pussy. And so it's this 25-year-old Jewish girl. Um, <laughs> her name is Alana. And I guess she's from like this family of like uh, that does music or something. So like her sisters are in it too. And like her real parents, they all play themselves. Um, and... Yeah, so she's 25 in the movie, and she's working as, like, the um, assistant to this school picture photography company, and they're at a high school, and there's this guy named Gary Valentine, a white guy, not Jewish at all, uh, and, you know, he sees her, and he's immediately attracted to her, because that's, you know, the power of Jewish women, I guess, Um, and he's only like 15 or 16 or something. And so she's kind of trepidatious about doing it and hesitant. Uh, And so the whole movie is about, I guess I should say spoilers or something, but like, who cares? It's not like a plot driven movie and it's been out for like six months. So whatever. Um, If you get mad about spoilers, like fuck you, who cares? Um, I don't think I've ever been mad that a movie got spoiled for me. Oh, like the twist was ruined, but there's no twist in this movie. Like it's just about, Jewish pussy. (laughs) There's no like plot, plot twist. Um, and yeah, it's interesting because Alana, she isn't like that hot really. She's not like amazing. She's not like Natalie Portman or anything. Not that I even think Natalie Portman's that hot. Like, I don't know. Natalie Portman is overrated. Um, but she's not like Gal Gadot, I guess, or Gadot, however you say that, you know, the dumb Israeli who plays, uh, Wonder Woman. Um, Alana, she's very like average looking and kind of ugly in this weird way. She has like a weird face. Like if you, you know, look up the movie, you'll see a picture of her. Um, but she has this kind of, I don't know, mystique that draws Gary to her. Um, and so Gary's like this former child actor, I guess. He describes himself as like a song and dance man. Um, and so he takes her at, uh, as her as his assistant to this like weird showbiz thing he was doing. And this other guy who does showbiz stuff with him, Lance, he's Jewish. He's this very Jewish looking actor. Um, I forget his name. But if you reckon, if you see his face, you'll recognize him from other things. He's in uh, the Righteous Gemstones, I think. Uh, <laughs> the, the Danny McBride HBO show. Um, and, you know, she sort of goes with him pretty quickly because he's just like this classic Jewish guy. Um, and maybe he's a little older. I don't know. Uh, but so she dates him briefly and it doesn't work because she invites him over for Shabbat dinner with her Jewish family. And he's, you know, he's like, Oh, I'm an atheist or whatever. Um, and so then that opens up an opportunity for Gary again. And so the movie, you know, it's pretty focused and like small, which I like, um, or at least for the first half of it is. It's very focused on, like, Gary and Alana and their burgeoning relationship, and, like, she's hesitant because she's nine years older than him and on and on. Um, 
And then, like, in the second half, it sort of randomly starts becoming this, like, weird collection of scenes that's all about cameos. Uh, And so they have, like, this sort of minor conflict. And then she runs off and she's, like, auditioning to be in some movie with Sean Penn. And Sean Penn plays this, like, director, producer, actor guy named Jack something. Um, And he's very, like, drawn to her, too, even though, you know, she's not that hot. Um, And so it gets kind of random again. And it's a Tom Waits is in that scene, too. And he's playing, like, this epic, weird guy, too. Um, And so it sort of felt like Paul Thomas Anderson, the writer and director, uh, just, like, wanted to have these different famous people that he likes have these cameos. And it became sort of distracting, and it was more about that than about, like, the more focused narrative of uh, Gary and Alana. Um, and then Bradley Cooper makes this big, weird cameo where he plays uh, Barbara Streisand's husband, uh, who I guess is some famous guy. I don't know his name. Um, and so he kind of, like, takes over for a while, and he's very drawn to Alana, too, and he, like, smells her and, like, tries to kiss her and all this weird stuff. Um And, yeah, it's very much about the strange power of Jewish women. Um, And there's, and so Gary is like this entrepreneur businessman guy. Uh, He kind of gives up on acting because there's an early scene where he like tries to audition for different things. Um, But he's like fat, uh, which I like that they made sort of a fat, young, unknown guy, the star of the movie. Uh, the, the guy who plays Gary, his name's Cooper something. Uh, he's pretty unknown. I haven't seen him in anything. Um, and he's pretty hefty and, like, sweaty. Um, and I think that's cool to put fat guys in leading roles um, because, you know, that's how people are. We need some body positivity for men, I think, finally. Um, and, yeah, so Gary sort of, like, realizes it. There's this early scene where he, again, auditions for something, and Maya Rudolph, who's Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, wife in real life, she plays, like, the casting director, and she kind of, like, rolls her eyes at Gary, like, oh, you're so big, like, he doesn't really have it anymore. Um, and he kind of realizes quickly that he doesn't have the, the acting goods anymore, and he can't really pursue a career in that. Um, so he just becomes this business guy. He sell, he goes to this weird store and like sees a waterbed and he's like, oh, waterbeds are the future. Um, and there's this hot saleswoman who kind of like seduces him into liking waterbeds. She like leans over him when he's laying in it in the store and like says all this stuff to him. And so he just like forms this powerful connection with waterbeds and he wants to sell them. Um, and then Alana is sort of drawn to that, to like him having this vision of being a businessman and she's going to be his assistant and whatever. Um, so that becomes their relationship and yeah, it's cool. Like I said, and it's pretty focused for a while, but then it gets into these weird cameos with Sean Penn and then Bradley Cooper and then, uh, Benny Safdie, who's the Safdie brothers. They've directed some movies. They made good time with Robert Pattinson like five years ago and then uncut gems, of course, like three years ago or whatever. Um, that annoying Adam Sandler movie that everyone was talking about when it came out, but like it, it's not really that good. Um, so yeah, Benny Safdie's in it. Um, and he plays this politician and Alana is like, so it's very taxi driver in this part. Um, so the movie's set in 1973, taxi driver set in like 1976, I think. And 
she becomes like the campaign secretary for Benny Safdie, who's like running for city councilor or something. Um, and so if you've seen Taxi Driver, Sybil Shepherd is like this campaign secretary and Robert De Niro uh, gets attracted to her and, you know, goes out with her and whatever. Um, and it's sort of like the set in the office. It very much has those same kind of vibes. Uh, and so Benny Safdie is the politician guy. And he's, you know, asked why he's not married by all these reporters and he gives these weird answers. Um, and it turns out that he's gay and he's, he invites uh, Alana to this um, dinner that he's having with his boyfriend. Uh, and she thinks that it's like, you know, a date or something and she's into him, I guess. Uh, but then she realizes that he just wants her there so that this, like, reporter who's following him uh, doesn't, like, think he's gay. Uh, and so he's, again, just kind of using her in this as her erotic energy or something. And so the whole thing is about, like, the sexualization of this Jewish woman um, in all kinds of various ways. Uh, and it's very strange because, I don't know, it feels like that's this kind of cultural theme that's developing right now, like the sexualization and eroticism of Jewish women. Um, and yeah, there's this interesting scene where uh, Gary's, you know, selling these waterbeds early on in the movie, and he has a lot of make phone calls, like sales calls for it. And the guy on the phone doesn't seem interested. And Gary's like, you have to be sexier and then he'll buy a bed. Um, and so she like turns on the sex appeal and she asks the guy's name and the guy's name is Ted, which is my name. Um, and so she, you know, uh, <laughs> that was interesting. And so she tries to like seduce this guy, um, into buying a bed and it ends up working. Um, so very strange, interesting movie. Um, it's a good period piece. It's very seventies, in an interesting way. And I think like our current moment is very seventies. I think I had an earlier podcast like a year ago, probably, um, where I, you know, argued that the 2020s is going to be 1970s part two. Um, and so the movie feels very present. Um, even though it's set in the seventies, it feels very much like right now. Um, and so I, you know, uh, there's this thing with oil that's going on in America right now. Gas prices are really high, and the movie goes through that, too, because in the 70s, um, the Arab nations, like, you know, did this oil embargo to protest what Israel was doing back then. Israel had to, like, pull out of this, you know, area they were in or something. Um, and so that's, you know, <laughs> Jewish pussy again, uh, causing these big conflicts. And so, you know the waterbeds are made out of oil. And so that business goes under. And so Gary has to like improvise and create some new business and on and on. Um, and so, yeah, now today, like there's no real economy anymore. You just kind of have to hustle and do bullshit. Uh, and Gary's very good at that. He's very charismatic in this superficial way, um, which I, which I guess Jewish women are attracted to. Um, and so he's, you know, he does the waterbed business and then he does this pinball business and on and on and on. Um, and yeah, there's this kind of malaise that's going on in the movie. Um, very much in the same way that there is, that there's a malaise right now. Um, but you know, 
And so the movie's called Licorice Pizza, and I was waiting for them to, like, explain that. <laughs> um, I always like in a movie when, you know, like in Jurassic Park, when they say, welcome to Jurassic Park. You're like, oh, that's the name of the movie. Um, but that didn't happen in this movie. And I asked someone, and they were like, oh, Licorice Pizza is, like, uh, what they used to call a vinyl record or something. And that's 70s, and this movie's set in the 70s, so it's kind of a weird title, and it has nothing to do with the movie, really. Um, the title should have been Jewish Pussy, because that's what the movie's really about. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie, maybe ever. I don't know. I know like everyone's supposed to love Paul Thomas Anderson, but um, I feel like he's kind of hit or miss, or he's taken too seriously almost. Like, you know, uh, he did There Will Be Blood in, I think, like 2007 that came out. And that's, you know, based on the Upton Sinclair novel called Oil. Um, and it's about this guy, Daniel Plainview, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, who's like this oil magnate or whatever. And, you know, he goes out west and drills for oil and starts this big company. And it's about his, like, capitalist rise through the, you know, business world. Um and Daniel Day-Lewis gives this crazy performance in it. And there's a lot of, like, uh, good cinematography of the West and the desert. Uh, and Paul Dano's in it, who's, who's a great young actor at that point. And now he's the Riddler, um, which is even better. And so that became, like, this super serious, prestigious Oscar kind of movie um, in a way that I don't think Paul Thomas Anderson, like, should be thought of um, because his, his first movie was, well, he did this movie called Hard Eight, I think was his first one. That was kind of a small, weird movie. Then Boogie Nights was a big one. Um, and that was basically just like a party movie about the 70s. And then he did some weird movies. Um, Punch Drunk Love he did, I think, in like 2000 uh, with Adam Sandler. Uh, and that was sort of this weird comedy where he takes Adam Sandler like as his comedic persona, but grounds him in this sort of realistic environment which is an interesting kind of thing to do um like an exploration of what the adam sandler comedic persona in the real world would be like uh and so i think that's what paul thomas anderson's about he's sort of about these weird light comedic things and about period pieces mostly in the 70s uh like making weird party movies um and that's what this movie is. So uh, I think his last movie before this, I could be wrong, was uh, Phantom Thread, like in 2018 maybe, uh, also with Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, where he plays this like great dressmaking guy <laughs> uh, who makes these wonderful dresses that are very important. Um, and so that was considered like this, oh, it's very serious. It's about dresses and it's Daniel Day-Lewis. It's like, wow, what a movie. But that's a, so spoiler alert, that's a crazy like movie about, uh, he gets this fetish for being poisoned at the end. So it's a weird like pervert movie. Um, and like it all, you know, it's, it's a joke. Like he ends up like really enjoying being poisoned by his girlfriend or wife or whatever. Um, and that's sort of what it's all about. And, you know, I think there's an interesting commentary on women there uh, that, you know, the Daniel Day-Lewis character in, in Phantom Thread, uh, he, like, the woman in his life literally poisons him. Like, she is poisoned to him. She almost kills him over and over again by poisoning his food. Uh, but he likes it. Um, and I think licorice pizza is kind of the same because this <laughs> this Jewish woman poisons him. Um <laughs> but in a good way. And so Gary, like, he's very tortured for most of the movie 
because, you know, Alana is kind of playing hard to get. Um, he has to chase after her. Um, early on, like, I thought the conflict with that Lance guy, who was the other Jew, who was this Jewish guy who was like a rival actor and steals Alana away from him. I thought that was going to be like a running conflict throughout the movie, but it ends pretty quickly because he's an atheist and you know, that upsets Alana's dad. And so she breaks up with him, I guess. I don't know. Um, It kind of would have been more interesting if they played that conflict between Gary and Lance out more because that seemed like a really good kind of dynamic between the three of them. Um, But that's over really quick. And then it like moves on to all these other things. Uh, which I guess is one criticism I have of it, that, like, it uh, sort of tries to do too much, and it's, like, too many different things. Um, and one of Paul Thomas Anderson's early movies, um, the fuck was it called? Magnolia. Um, it's very... There's, like, nine different movies in it, and, like, too many characters. And Paul Thomas Anderson often does that. Um, and so, I don't know. I think licorice pizza would have perhaps been better if it was more focused and kept kind of like a smaller range of things happening. Um, but you know, it's whatever. Um, I think Paul Thomas Anderson kind of just wants to like make it fun for himself and like have all of these different characters, all these different random scenes that aren't really connected necessarily. Um, and you know, that's just his style and it's fine. And he has a definitive style, which, you know, is very rare for a filmmaker and will probably never happen again. Um, and he's established enough that he, like, can make movies with his own style and, like, the studio and the actors and whatever. They'll go along with it and won't really question it too much. And he's kind of all over the map when it comes to the tone and style of his movies. Like, Phantom Thread and Licorice Pizza are incredibly different. Um, and, yeah, like, I don't think there's going to be another class of filmmaker who comes along and like is able to do what he does and have kind of the leeway that he has to do this wide range of styles and tones um because you know directors don't really get famous anymore like who's a new director that's like a household name like paul thomas anderson is or quentin tarantino those are kind of like the last two major like auteur which is a fancy word for artist uh art like you know artistic directors who have their own approach to things and are popular enough that they can start to sort of do whatever they want and write and direct their, their own movies now you know directors are just sort of chosen by studios uh because they're going to be reliable and like get the job done and most movies are just like intellectual property now marvel cinematic universe disney whatever disney owns you know most of the media world um and yeah, for, for a while, Disney would like find these promising up and coming directors who had made like one or two cool movies and then be like, okay, you're going to direct a new Star Wars. And then they would take it because it's a big opportunity and you can make a lot of money and whatever. Uh, and then it kind of just like ruins their momentum and their integrity as a filmmaker. Um, so yeah, this is all to say that um, I don't think there's going to be another Paul Thomas Anderson ever again and not because there aren't plenty of people as talented and with the vision that he has i'm sure there are lots of people who would be way better if given the opportunity but i don't think those kinds of conditions exist anymore and like you know paul thomas anderson was successful in the 90s uh and it seems like it was more possible back then to like have a smaller movie and 
um, it gets really widely popular and, you know, the studios will support you in, in doing more and more stuff. Um, and in general, I think, um, if you were successful in the nineties, like that means more than if you were successful in like the two thousands or 2010s or now, um, for whatever reason, like, I, I think I mentioned this in the last podcast I did about Chris Rock, like he had two good stand-up specials in the 90s and so now he's just like famous forever even though he hasn't really done shit in 20 years that's any good um so yeah it's one of my favorite paul thomas anderson movies um you feel like you're in the 70s but you also it also very much applies to what's going on right now um it addresses the theme of women in this interesting way that uh is sort of this overlooked theme throughout all of his work um I mentioned how women play a role in uh, Phantom Thread in kind of this like very dialectical way, like, you know, women poison the, the uh, Daniel Day-Lewis character in that movie, uh, but he enjoys it. And Alana, she kind of like, I don't know, comes into all these different men's lives in, these very, in this very kind of like intense way. And all these men are kind of drawn to her in this very intense way. Um, and it kind of tortures them. It tortures Gary, I think. Like, he's really, you know, traumatized by uh, the feelings he has for her and how she won't really commit because part of it's because the age difference, um, but part of it's just, like, she wants to go off and do all these other things. Like, she runs away to do this political campaign and to be this actress in this Sean Penn movie, whatever. Um, But ultimately, like, it's a good thing for Gary because it, I don't know, makes him tough and, you know, uh, it's love. It uh, makes him who he is. Um, And I mentioned Punch Drunk Love earlier. And in that movie, Adam Sandler, he has all these sisters who kind of like treat him like shit. And so there's this negative interaction with women there too. Um, And so, yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson's movies are all wildly different, as I mentioned, but it does kind of focus on this core theme of... (laughs) (laughs) women, I guess, uh, from this very like masculine, I don't want to say misogynistic, but like definitely not progressive perspective. Um, he's very much this old school point of view when it comes to everything really. Um, and I think that's why he feels at home in the seventies because like the dynamic between men and women was so different back then. Um, and early on in Licorice Pizza, uh, I mentioned Alana is working as this photography assistant, um, and like the main photographer guy slaps her on the ass, and it's kind of like jarring way. Um, and I don't know, I like I couldn't picture any other filmmaker doing that really. Like that would be considered like offensive or like, oh, this is not okay. Blah blah. blah. Um, and yeah, like w- I think the most noteworthy thing about Licorice Pizza in the press was, um, other than like the age age difference between Alana and Gary, which some people said was problematic, whatever, um, but not really that much because, you know, it was an older woman and a younger man. If it was reversed, if it was an older man and a younger woman, then that would be a big problem, of course, because there's a double standard there. Um, but if it was an older man and a younger woman, I don't think the movie would have gotten made. <laughs> but um, so that was kind of a thing in the media that was controversial about this. But the main thing was like uh, people thought it was racist against Chinese people or against Asian people. Sorry, um, because there's this random like 
two or three scenes where this guy who's like one of Gary's friends um, who owns a restaurant, I think, I don't know. Um, he has the like these two, he has a Japanese wife and then he has another Japanese wife. And he speaks in this very like, <laughs> like, oh, how you doing? And this very like stereotypical Asian, like butchered, like stupid uh, dialect to, to his wife. Um, and like, it's clearly absurd and you're laughing at him. Um, and like, he's the idiot in, in the scene. Um, but people like, you know, were on Twitter, like, Oh, this is so, this is genuinely harmful, uh, to hear this kind of mock Asian voice, uh, in this day and age when, you know, Asian hate, hate crimes against Asians are at an all time high, whatever. You know, that's true. But, um, it's a very small part of the movie. And, like, it's making fun of someone who would, like, have that stereotypical, like, Asian voice. Like, it's not, like, making a joke at the expense of Asians. It's making a joke about, like, this dumb, dumb guy who, you know, does that. Um, but, yeah, that, those scenes have nothing to do with the movie. Um, and it's very random. It's just, like, this – Gary has all these, like, weird older friends and these connections because he's, like, this – sort of big man around town, even though he's 16, which is kind of strange. Um, so yeah, those were kind of the main things that the media picked up on about this. And I don't know, it seems like Paul Thomas Anderson's like becoming this anti-woke artist, I guess, which is kind of, I don't know, inevitable. Um, because I, I guess he's a real artist and he's not trying to like give like positive messages in his movies. Um, really no messages like it's it's art and it's also not very like genre heavy like tarantino and anderson are always compared with each other but tarantino he's all like it's all about genre and about form in this kind of weird way like um his last movie once upon a time in hollywood that was also a period piece i think set in the 70s as well um and it was kind of historical it was about the manson family um but it wasn't really transgressive in any way, I don't think. There was some shocking violence at the end, but it wasn't really saying much, I don't think. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. So, yeah, I think Paul Thomas Anderson isn't trying to be didactic or give, like, any real social message. Um, he's just doing shit that uh, expresses his perspective Um and he's a white man, and so, like, you're not supposed to <laughs> do that nowadays. Um, I don't know. So he's become kind of, like, this controversial figure, I guess. I don't know. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what he does next. I don't know. But he's also this, like, very, f like, fun-loving, easygoing guy. So I don't know. Um, and, like, did he put those weird Asian scenes in there, like, just to fuck with people? I don't know. And, like, it's not that funny either. Like, I guess he thought it was funny, but... I don't know. Maybe he did it like on purpose to troll and to just like get attention for the movie or something. But I don't know. Like it seems like the movie was a little overlooked. Maybe it was nominated for Oscars. I don't know. I could check, but I'm not going to. Um, and yeah, I think the title wasn't great. Like what the fuck is like licorice pizza? Um, it should have been called Jewish Pussy, but I don't know if you can call a movie Jewish Pussy. Like, I mean, that's what he should, like, I've been talking about how he's, like, this anti-woke guy, and, like, if he was really gonna stick to his guns and be about what he's about, that's what he should have done, but, um, anyway, 
good movie. And one of the first movies I've seen, I've seen, I've been to the movie theater a few times since COVID ended, but um, this was probably the best movie I saw. Uh, And no one else was there. So I (laughs) I had it all to myself, which was nice. Okay, uh, enough of that. Um, So I want to talk about a few other things. Um, Will Smith, obviously, uh, slapped Chris Rock last week, whenever it was, um, at the Oscars. And I did a podcast about that um, where I gave my take. Um, It already is super boring and, like, who cares? It was just a fucking slap. And people have real problems in the world. Um, But uh, apparently, like, all of his movies that he was going to make and things he's producing are being put on hold. And so he's being pretty much canceled. Um, And so, like, is should he be canceled for slapping Chris Rock? Uh, Because he was violent in public? I don't know. Like, there's lots of violence in the world. Violence is very much a basic part of, you know... Uh, capitalist society um, and of America like you know police kill people on the streets all day every day and rarely ever get in trouble for it Um, you know America invaded Iraq 20 years ago killed hundreds of thousands of people George Bush Dick Cheney got in no trouble Will Smith slaps a guy an annoying shitty comedian Chris Rock people shouldn't like again he was funny like in the 90s okay and he wasn't even that funny um and he slapped him it's not uh, i don't think it gave him any medical damage if he like punched him and fractured his eye or something that's different but it was a fucking slap um and so it's it's weird how he's being punished like this um i don't know i think like people are afraid like oh trump unleashed this demon in the american psyche and now everyone's going to just sort of lash out and you know indulge their id and do all this weird shit um and so whenever people do stuff like uh it's considered this like very dangerous slippery slope like oh if will smith can do this then what's next blah blah blah. um but I, i don't think will smith should be punished for doing that like it's it's fine um, and he's, you know, and it, it's weird, like people are so quick to write people off, uh, and everyone knows Will Smith, he's been around forever and he's been very open and very like positive and, um, and so for everyone to act like, oh, he's dangerous now. Like, I don't think that's true. Um, and, uh, I don't know, maybe that's part of the reason why, um, everyone's freaking out about this is because like it seems so out of character for Will Smith to slap someone. So it's kind of breaking people's brains. I don't know. Um, I don't think he should have his projects canceled, but it seems like that's what's happening now. Because, like, uh, you know, the line that everyone has to take on this is violence is wrong, it was assault, um, and we, we can't tolerate this, blah, blah, blah. And everyone in Hollywood, in the industry, in the larger liberal class and sphere has to kind of toe that line. Um, And so Will Smith has to be frozen out of everything. You know, it's not like he's going to starve or become homeless. He's got tens of millions in the bank, maybe hundreds of millions, who knows? Um, And so, like, he'll be fine financially. But, yeah, it just shows how quick people are to write people off and throw away their whole history and 
everything good about them. And even if most people don't think it was that big of a deal, which most people probably don't, um, it's just kind of like once the once the opinion gets locked in like this bad, then it's very hard to go against it. Even if most people like quietly, you know, think it's okay. Um, yeah. So that's going on. Uh, Bruce Willis retired from acting last week. Um, he didn't even do it. He had his like daughter, Rumor Willis, uh, come out and be like, yeah, he has basically brain damage, aphasia. It's some, some sort of like really bad kind of dementia. Uh, and he hasn't been in a real movie in years. He's been doing a lot of these like direct to pay-per-view movies that are made like really quickly and cheaply and that he gets like 90% of the budget, just, you know, his salary and he does them purely to make money. And he's only on set for like a day or two and just like mumbling his lines. Uh, and they have, you know, someone with an earpiece just feeding him his lines. And if you've seen any of these movies, I saw one of them, I think. Um, and it's clear that they were just made purely for money and which every movie is, but like, this was like, it's kind of interesting because it's like, there's no artifice there. Like usually with other movies, it's like, oh, you know, there's some, there's some like pretense or some artifice of like, we're trying to make something entertaining or maybe artistic, um, even though it's clearly all for money, like everything is in a capitalist society. But with the Bruce Willis movies, it was like really stripped down to just like, this is purely a financial thing that's happening. Um, and yeah, he was doing it just because he had a name he could make money off of. Uh, so yeah, his uh, family came out and said he's not going to do that anymore because his brain damage has gotten too bad. Um, and yeah, I, I heard he, uh, went deaf all the way back in when he was filming Die Hard in like the late eighties, um, or ha de like partially deaf in one ear cause like a gun went off right next to his head and he probably, you know, got multiple concussions doing stunts on all, on all those movies he was on. So it's probably been a long time coming and like, he probably, uh, people have been, you know, accusing Bruce Willis of like phoning it in and like not being as good as he used to be for years, for like 10 years, 15 years at least probably. Like when was the last time Bruce Willis had a decent movie? Like I can't remember. Um, so yeah, he was just kind of going through the motions for a really, really long time. And it shows again, like if you're, if you were successful in the eighties or nineties, you could just keep going even if you didn't have anything to say or didn't give a shit anymore or didn't have any talent anymore. Um, I wish Chris Rock would have aphasia and fucking quit. Um, so yeah, Bruce Willis is gone and uh, it's sad. And so a lot of these like massive cultural figures are kind of on the way out and I don't really see anything that's going to replace them uh, because celebrities now... Uh, don't really uh, have the same impact that they used to. Um, it's all very like quick. People get famous quick and then they go away quick. Um, I don't really think anyone has staying power anymore. Uh, and part of it is that like, there aren't really big movies or big cultural products in general in the, in the way that there used to be. Um, and when there are big movies, like the Avengers, it's not really about the movie stars in them. It's about the larger narrative of all of the different movies. And it's about, you know, the characters themselves and like the intellectual property, the property that already exists um, more than about the movie stars. 
And so I don't think like new movie stars are going to be possible anymore. And I don't know, maybe that's a good thing. Cause like who gives a shit about movie stars really? But like, that was a unifying thing in the culture at least. And I don't know what's going to replace it. Um, and like rock stars are dead. This has been said for a long time. This isn't a new observation. Um, literally like they're dying off. Uh, the Foo Fighters was, I think one of the last like relative uh, the Foo Fighters have been around for 20 years. So they're not new, but they're not like the Rolling Stones or anything. Um, but they could fill up stadiums and there aren't too many rock bands and the Foo Fighters were like a pure old timey rock band. Um, and again, they could do stadium tours, like sell out stadiums all around the world, not just in America. And, there are other bands who can do that, like the Rolling Stones or, I don't know, Pink Floyd or whatever, all these old-time bands. But those guys are like 80 years old, and the Foo Fighters are, I think, in their 50s. And so, yeah, their drummer, uh, Taylor Hawkins, died last week. Um, and so I, he was a huge part of the band, obviously. Like him and Dave Grohl were like the heart and soul of the band. And so the Foo Fighters probably won't make music anymore. Um, and again, they were one of the last like big rock and roll bands, and I don't know who's going to come along after them. Um, and part of the reason they were so big is because you know Dave Grohl was in Nirvana, and Foo Fighters became like the new Nirvana, or like a place for Nirvana fans to, I don't know, go or whatever. Even though the music didn't really sound the same, um, but yeah, I, I can't remember the last like other big rock bands that that there was, like the Black Keys maybe from like 2010, but you don't really hear about them as much anymore. I don't know. Um, rap is rap is the new thing. Um, that's where like a lot of the new energy and new shit is. <laughs> I sound like I'm 50 years old, um, but you know, even that like someone like Kanye, he takes up all the cultural space, and it's not really about his music anymore. It's more about like his personal drama and like Donda and Donda Two are his last two albums and. I don't think they were very good. And um, it's more about like, you know, it's all just about reality shit. That's all anyone cares about. They just care about like the the artist himself rather than the art that's being produced. Um, and people just care about the artist himself to tear him down. Um, so it's a lot of like, I don't know, spite and jealousy and whatever. Because with social media and the internet, everyone thinks that they can, you know, become a star, I guess. Um, you know, I'm doing a podcast, so I'm as guilty of this as anyone else. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Um, so it's a very weird cultural moment. And it's been this way for a while, of course. But um, it feels like it's coming to a head and like kind of all speeding up and ramping up in this really intense way. Um, so yeah, it feels like it's the end of something in general. But uh, there's nothing that's coming after it. Like, I don't know what's going to replace culture as it's, as it's dying. Um, but you know, this has been said forever that like, Oh, we're fucked and there's no future, blah, blah, blah. And like young people are doomed and whatever, but usually things work out and everything's fine. Um, because, um, but you know, things are a lot darker and sort of more terminal now. Um, drug overdoses all-time high and like people are coming out of the covid haze and the covid lockdown world like I, I live in new york and people don't really wear masks anymore and 
they don't ask you for your um, vaccination passport really as much anymore or at all. Um, so it's really over in terms of like the mitigation and control that were part of society for two years. Um, but yeah, like people's brains are totally broken and we're going to be dealing with this for a long time. Um, and I think we're just going to keep seeing more erratic, bizarre behavior, um, as like people try to emerge back into society. And who knows, maybe that's why Will Smith fucking slapped Chris Rock because he went insane during COVID. Um, maybe Bruce Willis's brain damage got worse during COVID. <laughs> maybe Taylor Hawkins, his drug problem got worse because I think he died of a drug overdose, but I don't know, um, allegedly. Um, and yeah, like, so people need culture in this really bad way right now um, to just to, you know, help them rediscover the point of existence and give them something interesting. Um, but like, do artists have the energy or imagination for that anymore? Because brains have been so broken over the last two years. I don't know. Um, and yeah, like intellectuals and thought leaders are all really bad now too. Um, they seem very dated. Like everything's very 2010s. Which I guess makes sense because it's the early 2020s and one decade builds on the next. But like the 2010s people, like Elon Musk, for example, he's one of the biggest social and in his way thought leaders that's out there. And he's very like 2011 Reddit, Rick and Morty. Like he has no vision. Like it's it's all bullshit. And like uh, it's this kind of fake vision of the future. Like uh, electric cars, it's, it's not going to be this big thing. Not everyone's going to have a fucking electric car. Uh, he has this boring company, which is like trying to drill tunnels under the ground so that traffic problems get solved. So it's this very like libertarian, individualistic entrepreneur approach to solving social problems. And it's bullshit and it doesn't work. Um, and he was a big self-driving car to, uh, guy too. Uh, and self-driving cars were pushed as the next big thing really hard in the like mid-2010s. And like everyone thought like we were going to have them by now because it's the early 2020s. Um, this is how it was talked about like not that many years ago. Um, people were writing these very serious philosophy papers about like, oh, what are the ethics of autonomous vehicles and so on? And like it's not going to happen. Like there's been no real progress on it. And like I don't think people want it either. Um and so, yeah, like, where do we go for different ideas? Um, and it seems like people with new ideas aren't really given a chance unless, you know, it's for identity reasons. I'm like, oh, it's a woman or black person or whatever. Um, I hope I don't sound bigoted here. But, yeah, people are you – know, this isn't a new observation either, but, like, people are given – you know, platforms more for who they are rather than what they have to say. Um, and this goes with, you know, a larger theme I've been developing on this podcast, I guess, uh, that like, you know, Bruce Willis had a long career just because of who he was rather than anything he had to say. Chris Rock, I think the same way, like he hasn't had any social insight in at least 20 years, but still, you know, he's this big cultural presence, I guess. Um, and yeah, with diff with like I don't know cultural commentators and public intellectuals, it's like 
like the main philosopher, the main public philosopher in the world, Slavoj Žižek. I don't think he's had anything to say really for a long time. And he's kind of out of touch. Like he comments on movies and doesn't see the movies. Like it's all just trolling and it's not real, but he has a name and, you know, um, he rode this kind of wave of like Derrida and psychoanalysis being popular and kind of combined them in this way that I don't think is really that helpful or interesting and just kind of empowers these, you know, um, suits as they're called pseudo intellectuals, um, which is different from me. I'm a real intellectual. Um, and so, yeah, like anyone who has something to say won't really be allowed to say it. And I guess Will Smith, uh, (laughs) had something to say, which was don't fucking talk about my wife or I will hit you. And we see what happened to him, of course. Um, and so something I wanted to mention was this guy, Ta-Nehisi Coates, who you've probably heard of. Uh, he did this like dialogue in Harlem with this, with this rapper called Black Thought, who I guess is pretty well known. Um, and yeah, there were posters for it all around Brooklyn and in Harlem and whatever. Um, and it was, it was at the Apollo Theater, I guess. And it was supposed to be like this very like important dialogue about the state of society, you know. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates with Black Thought. Here we go. This is really going to get to the bottom of some shit, man. Um, but again, I think Ta-Nehisi Coates is very much a 2010s guy. So he had this big book called Between the World and Me about racism. I didn't read it, but it came out, I don't know, probably like <coughs> 2012, 2013, maybe during the Obama years. Uh, and every liberal NPR person pissed themselves about how much they loved it and whatever. Um, and has it improved race relations? Do we understand anything more? I don't think so. And I think the title of that book is telling between the world and me. So it's about him. So it's all, uh, he is very much part of it. So it's identitarian in this way. Um, and he, you know, is sort of positioning himself and is being talked about in the media or has been for years as the new James Baldwin. Um, so he wants to write like James Baldwin. And James Baldwin writes in this, or used to write, he's been dead for a while, uh, in this very, like, dramatic kind of almost violent way, but in this sort of fake violent way. Like James Baldwin was this, like, very short gay man. He was kind of this contradiction where, like, he writes in this very, like, thunderous, aggressive way, but, like... That's not who he really was. Um, and he lived abroad for a long time. And I'm pretty sure Ta-Nehisi Coates lives abroad. I should probably... But anyway, um, yeah, it's 2022. And Ta-Nehisi Coates was like this sort of fake radical, like, he, he, uh, that the neoliberal class sort of uh, fetishized in this way in like 2015. Um, and we're still stuck with him as like this radical, but he, he wasn't a radical then and he's not now. And like, it's 2022, we're getting like halfway through 2022 almost. And still, this is what we have. Um, and so, you know, there's the connection to James Baldwin and James Baldwin is still talked about like, oh, that's the real stuff. Like that's the goods. He was a real radical and we don't have guys like that anymore. And if we just had writers and activists like that, then everything would be okay. Um, And I don't think that's true about James Baldwin. Malcolm X, yes, I think he's the real deal. Um, But James Baldwin is often kind of put in that category. And I don't think that's true. Um, 
So there was a documentary about James Baldwin that came out in like 2017, maybe, called I Am Not Your Negro. Um, and I saw it at the time and I thought it was very powerful um, because the way he talked is so different than the way people talk now. So it was kind of like shocking and it shows how soft and softened we've become. Um, and he sort of exposed things in this very blunt way in the same way that Malcolm X did. Um, but Malcolm X was, you know, much more political. Whereas James Baldwin was, he was a writer who mostly wrote about himself. And in the title of that doc, of that documentary, um, I, so it's about him, uh, just like with ta Coates' book, Between the World and Me, um, there's a personal pronoun in that as well. So I do think that James Baldwin, like ta Coates, is kind of identitarian in this way. Um, and he's, you know, again, portrayed as this radical but I don't think he is really. And so uh, our current radicals are fake, like Ta-Nehisi Coates, and really like the agreed-upon pantheon of radicals, like James Baldwin, I think that's kind of fake too. Like, So I read some, not all of James Baldwin's books, but um, I read The Fire Next Time when I was in college, and not for class or anything, just because I wanted to read it. And I, I think I read it all in one sitting. Like, it's very... Uh, readable. <laughs> um, and there's this crazy energy in it, um, sort of like prophetic, like you're reading something that is on fire. Um, and so that's a good title for that book. But it's a really short book. It's like barely 100 pages. And if I remember right, it's uh, mostly about Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, who was Malcolm X's like teacher and leader. Malcolm X was like the you know right hand man for Elijah Muhammad. Then they had a power struggle, and Elijah Muhammad most likely had him killed. Um, and so it's most it's mostly James Baldwin sort of in dialectical uh, exchange with Malcolm X and with the ideas of Malcolm X. And I think that's why that book is so powerful and so electric uh, is because it draws on Malcolm X's energy in this in this way. Um, and James Baldwin has some other good books, you know, but I think The Fire Next Time is like his, is probably his best book. Um, he wrote a bunch of novels too that I don't think are very good. Um, James Baldwin was gay, so he dealt with that theme in this book, Giovanni's Room, um, that I guess some people like. I see people on, on the train in New York reading it sometimes. Um, but again, that's more identity politics stuff, and it's not necessarily political. Um, and James Baldwin lived in Paris for a long time, just because he didn't want anything to do with uh, America because it was so, it's so evil here, um, especially for black people. But he eventually came back because he felt like a duty to his country or something. Um, but, you know, he didn't live here for a long time. So, you know, he peaced out and he was more interested in you know, living that sort of expat life and in being an artist. Um, and so I, I don't think he's the best, like, example of like a radical intellectual i don't know but again he's sort of held up as like the like oh james baldwin had it we just have to sort of reconnect with what with with his vibe and then we'll you know be all set i don't know um okay <laughs> i think that's about enough well thanks for listening and i will uh see you again soon bye